Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome everybody. Um, special thank you for coming through what's kind of a raw, raw day out there today, making your way down here for tonight's special event, which is a discussion with Professor Ronald C. White, Jr. of his new book, A. Lincoln, which I have to admit, I've read it and enjoyed it. It's a really, really fascinating book. I thought to kind of put everyone in the mood, I'd read a little uh, short paragraph. The world has never had a good definition of the word liberty, and the American people just now are much in want of one. We all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. With some... The word liberty may mean for each man to do as he pleases with himself and the product of his labor, while with others, the same word may mean for some men to do as they please with other men and the product of other men's labor. Here are two not only different but incompatible things called by the same name, liberty, and it follows that each of the things is by the respective parties called by two different and incompatible names liberty and tyranny. These are words that come from a speech given by Abraham Lincoln here in Baltimore in April of 1864. Um, I'm happy to say that the house in which Lincoln spent the night of April 18th, 1864 still exists, and it's right up the street from us at 702 Cathedral Street. It's not marked, but the house itself is still, is still there. Um, we're very honored this evening by having Professor Ronald C. White as our guest. Professor White's new book, A. Lincoln, explores Lincoln's evolution as a political thinker and as president of the United States by studying his thought as expressed in Lincoln's speeches and writings. Uh, professor White is a fellow at the Huntington Library and a visiting professor of history at UCLA, also the author of two best-selling books on Lincoln, The Eloquent President and Lincoln's Greatest Speech, the latter of which was selected as a New York Times notable book. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Professor Ronald C. White, Jr. Thank you, Bob, for that introduction. You and I were thinking along the very same line. Abraham Lincoln, if you think about it, almost never spoke outside of Washington. The members of his cabinet were shocked when he accepted the invitation to speak at Gettysburg. They were sure he would turn it down. He turned down all invitations. He only spoke when perhaps it was in conjunction with visiting the troops. So they were also surprised when he decided to come to Baltimore. Baltimore didn't have a very good memory for Abraham Lincoln, what had happened to the troops coming through here. He wasn't sure. He, he, he talked about that when he gave that speech. But if I could just give the one more sentence from it, the beauty of Lincoln's speaking simply his definition of words, but the way he then, almost in a way that Jesus would speak, says it in a parable. This is the way he makes clear what he's talking about liberty. The shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat, for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as a liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as the destroyer of liberty, especially if the sheep was a black one. Some have criticized Lincoln in our day for not speaking out more strongly about what we might call racism. I was instructed recently by Jesse Jackson Jr. who said, do not use the word racism about anybody in the 19th century. 
That word was only coined in the 1930s. You can't do it. But isn't it interesting that Lincoln, who starts to speak out strongly in praise of black soldiers now in this metaphor, talks about the black sheep who has been, what, in the throats of the wolf? Well, that wasn't the way I intended to begin, (laughs) but I want to just pick up on this marvelous speech that he gave, which is often, it just slipped into, uh, we've lost our memory of it. The speech at what was called the Sanitary Fair here in Baltimore, raising money for the United States Sanitary Commission, a commission that wanted to help soldiers in the battlefield. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for coming. I'd like to begin with a question. Uh, Could you get in touch with the first or maybe the last time you were at the Lincoln Memorial? Uh, It is the second most visited place in Washington second only to the Vietnam Memorial. I suspect that last year, the year of the Lincoln Bicentennial, it may have been the most visited place. You recall as you walk towards the memorial up those steps, what you first see is the tall, 29-foot high Daniel Chester French statue of Lincoln. And then as you walk inside what I call that temple space, if you turn to the left carved on One panel is the Gettysburg Address. If you turn to the right, carved on three panels in Indiana Limestone is the second inaugural address. But the point, the reason that I've written my biography of Lincoln is that awe or inspiration or reverence isn't the same thing as understanding. You and I could go to a concert of our particular musical choice and we might have a deep sense of feeling about it. Music can do that for us. But that doesn't necessarily mean we understand the music. When I was a student in college at UCLA, uh, I sang in the a cappella choir. And the director was Roger Wagner, who founded the Roger Wagner Chorale. It was really an awesome experience. In our junior year, I just found on Sunday, actually, that the program from this, we sang Bach's St. John's Passion. And I was moved to tears. It was really something. When it was over, Wagner, quite an impresario, said, now next year we're going to do something more difficult. We're going to sing Beethoven's Misa Solemnis. Well, I recognized a week or two after that that as much as I enjoyed this music, I didn't really understand it. So I determined that in my last year of college, I would take a course in Bach for non-music majors and a course in Beethoven that I might understand. So Lincoln is probably viewed by most Americans, if not the most respected president, certainly up in the top three. But I wanted to write a book to help us understand him more, not necessarily for the Lincoln file, but for the person who just is interested, curious. And especially for younger people, it's hard to get them out to an audience like this. We were talking about this beforehand, who probably don't study as much about Lincoln today in their public schools as we might have studied in our public schools. And then there are questions that come about Lincoln. The question that I intimated earlier, was Lincoln a racist? What did Lincoln think about habeas corpus? He suspended it here in Maryland. And that question keeps coming. So every generation comes with its own questions and I believe needs to engage the men and women of our history again and again and again for their time. I've given you a handout. What I want to suggest we do this evening in a few minutes together 
is to open up a few of what I will call the windows about Lincoln. Now, this might surprise you, but we are still learning a lot about Lincoln, and Lincoln papers and photographs are still turning up. Talking with someone beforehand who had read David Donald's biography, his great biography, 1995, all sorts of things have occurred since 1995. For example, just as Donald was writing his biography, a young professor at Sangamon State College, now the University of Illinois at Springfield, got into his mind if Lincoln was a lawyer who practiced all over the state of Illinois, could it be that there are still some Lincoln legal papers in the 102 county courthouses of Illinois? So he gathered together a group of master's degree students and he sent them out and lo and behold they found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Lincoln legal documents invariably rolled up, turned blue, in the basements, in the files of these old courthouses. What they also found was his name had been razor bladed out in the 19th century. Why? Because someone came up to me, one of you here, thank you, and asked for my autograph. That's what people wanted in the 19th century. And so they were razor blading out his autograph. But Lincoln's handwriting is so distinctive that we know these are Lincoln's legal documents. And now in the last few years, finally, we have published more than 5,000, 5,000 Lincoln legal documents, which give us a much wider view of Lincoln the lawyer. Photographs. About four or five years ago, this is the beauty of the internet, I guess, a man in Longmont, Colorado, tuned on to the National Archives. And he was looking at various photographs, and he came to one that said, the first inauguration of Ulysses S. Grant, March 4, 1869. And as he looked at the photograph and saw all of these soldiers around, he said, this isn't the inauguration of Ulysses S. Grant, not in 1869, not all these soldiers. He called the National Archives and he said, is it possible that you have mislabeled this photograph? I'm quite certain this must be the second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Why would all those soldiers be there? Because the army had been drastically reduced after the Civil War. <gasps> to their embarrassment, <laughs> they did some checking and found this was a photograph of Lincoln's second inauguration that we never knew existed. And it had a whole panorama of the crowd that we had never seen before. Well, it had been there, but we thought it was Grant. So these things have gone on and on and on, and they continue. The National Archives, thanks to eBay, they have somebody checking eBay. They had half of a document. By checking eBay, they figured out that this man in Arizona had bought the second half of the document. They contacted him, and he voluntarily donated it to the National Archives. So now we have the whole of a Lincoln letter that had been lost. The first window I want to open tonight is Lincoln the Politician. We're gearing up in 2010 for what appears to be a very nasty political season. And Lincoln arrives first on the scene as a politician. Born in 1809 in Kentucky, moving with his family to Indiana in 1816, and then to Illinois in 1830, he separates himself at age 21 and moves to the tiny village of New Salem. There within probably no more than six months, either he or his friends encourage him to run for political office 
for the Illinois State Legislature. How did one do that in those days? One did it by announcing your candidacy in a local newspaper. The first selection is the 20-something Abraham Lincoln announcing himself as a candidate for the Illinois legislature. With less than one year of public education, he says these words. Every man is said to have his peculiar ambition. Whether it be true or not, I can say for one that I have no other so great as that of being truly esteemed of my fellow men by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. How far I shall succeed in gratifying this ambition is yet to be developed. I am young and unknown to many of you. I was born and have ever remained in the most humble walks of life. I have no wealthy or popular relations to recommend. Would you vote for someone in November 2010 who said, I, have no, I can say for one that I have no other ambition so great as that of being truly esteemed of my fellow men by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. One of the questions that I asked myself in writing this biography was how did Lincoln balance his ability and his ambition with his own, what really emerges in the latter part of his life, his humility? May I read just a couple of sentences from my biography? Lincoln's moral integrity is the strong trunk from which all the branches of his life grew. His integrity has many roots in the soil, in Shakespeare, and in the Bible. Ambition was present almost from the beginning, and he had to learn to prune this branch that it not grow out of proportion in his life. So part of this story is how one balances one's ambition, but yet serves the constituency that has elected you. Well, one of the, a second window I'd like to open is how did Lincoln rise then in Illinois with little education? And I begin to introduce in the story his friends, almost of the same age, all lawyers, all had fought in the Black Hawk War, but somehow he distinguishes himself from them. I suggest that he rises by his gift of public speaking. Ah, Here's a problem I want to throw out for you. President Obama spoke to it yesterday, the day before, in his marvelous commencement address at Hampton University. It is the fact that we have come to accept the adage, it's only words. We have become distrustful of words in our culture, or we have become careless with words. I know I don't want to step on anybody's toes in terms of Twitter or Blackberry, I'm a recovered Blackberry user. I've turned it back in so that I will have time to think. Steve Lopez, who wrote The Soloist, the great award-winning book, had a column three days ago in the Los Angeles Times in which he said, why are Californians spending so much time texting when it's illegal? And he asked a, pol a police officer, and the police officer said, I think it's the problem that we don't know how to be alone anymore. We don't know how to think anymore. And so we spend our time saying, Mary, I'm about to take a shower. And all these stupid texts that are just going on. Calif it's illegal to text in the state of California. And yet the texting has risen right back up to the place 
where it was before the law was passed. $369 if you drive in the carpool lane. $20 if you text. Figure out the consequences from that. Lincoln rose by his gift of public speaking. The third, the selection at the bottom of the page, oops, I've taken this one out. Well, we won't use that window tonight. He rose as a politician four terms in the Illinois State Legislature, and then he was elected to Congress. He came to Congress in 1847, December, and his friends in Illinois were anxious for him to speak. And finally he said, I will speak, I'm just getting ready. One of the things that happens when I have the privilege of doing this book signing is interacting with the audiences where I speak. The State Department sent me to Germany to speak on Abraham Lincoln. It's fascinating to hear the questions and the opinions of Lincoln in Germany. And then they sent me to Mexico to speak about Lincoln. And in Mexico, I learned about the American War. You know what the American War is, don't you? But well, we call it the Mexican War. They called it the American War. And as I got prepared to speak to them, I thought, I better do a little rethinking of how I'm going to present this. Uh, Benito Juarez, the great hero and liberator of Mexico, this little tiny five-foot Indian, was a great admirer of Abraham Lincoln. And so I talked about the relationship of Juarez and Lincoln. And then I picked out these, this next window. Lincoln arrives in, at Congress, and he does what we would say is not a very smart thing at all. He criticizes the war with Mexico. He tries to take this thin line that he is against the policy, but for the troops. Try that one on. That doesn't work very well, that one is against the policy and for the troops. This is what he says in his first speech in Congress. This House desires to obtain a full knowledge of all the facts which to establish whether the particular spot of soil on which the blood of our citizens was so shed was or was not our own soil at the time. And quickly Lincoln achieves the reputation of Spotty Lincoln. Spotty Lincoln. Because he chooses to challenge the idea that the Mexicans didn't start this war. We started this war. Or at the very least, we moved into their territory and, and egged them on to start the war. Well, Lincoln is already receiving bad press in Illinois, but he hasn't, he hasn't even gotten started. Just a few weeks later in January, now I propose to show that the whole of this issue and evidence is from the beginning to end the sheerest deception. Let him answer with facts and not with arguments. Let him remember that he sits where Washington sat, and so remembering, let him answer as Washington would answer. Lincoln, the lawyer, Lincoln, the lover of this country, always appealed to precedent. And then he says of Polk, I more than suspect already that he is deeply conscious of being in the wrong, that he feels the blood of this war, like the blood of Abel, is crying to heaven against him. And then he concluded by saying this of the President of the United States. President Polk is a bewildered, confounded, and miserably perplexed man. Well, Lincoln returned to Illinois, and they said to him, thank you very much. You will, we will never elect you again to any political office. And the Whigs this, had won three consecutive elections in Lincoln's home territory. The next person, Stephen Logan, his former law partner, lost to a Democrat, 
and Lincoln was accused of being the problem, the reason that Logan lost. So Lincoln, believing he's not going to be elected again, moves out to be a lawyer. For the next five years, 1849 to 1854, he practices as a lawyer. Just a little window here. Time is of the essence. Lincoln prepares a lecture to give to lawyers. And at the center of that lecture, he offers this comment. I've been invited to speak to lawyers and to justices, and I love to say this. The lawyer, Lincoln says, has a superior opportunity to be a peacemaker. The lawyer has a superior opportunity to be a peacemaker. Settle if you can. Settle if you can. A man wrote me from New York City a week ago. We'd been, I'd given a talk there, and he said, you can't believe it. He said, I'm involved in this terrible lawsuit, and I sent this to the adversary. I said, let's both read Lincoln and see what we can decide here. Lincoln says, settle if you can, because even if you win, if the jury or the judge awards you the victory, you will not be the winner, because you will have to live together in these same small communities. We think of Lincoln as a war president. He died 41 days after his second inauguration. Lincoln was looking forward to being a peace president. He was at his best as a peacemaker, as a conciliator. He believed that he could deal fairly with the South, and even though they saw him through a caricature, he could begin to win them over, and that his best days were ahead. He taught himself to be commander-in-chief. He was already prepared to be a peacemaker. Another window. In thinking about Lincoln, Sometimes I think we, we believe, well, maybe he was just a genius, you know. Uh, he absolutely could just sit down and with a stroke of a pen write out these magnificent speeches. That's to misunderstand him. I used to ask this question, but I don't ask it anymore because I don't want you to put up your hand. It could be too embarrassing for you. How many of you think Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address on the back of a flap of an envelope on the train to Gettysburg? Don't put up your hand. It's absolutely untrue. A sentimental novelist at the beginning of the 20th century who had written many successful novels wrote a book called A Perfect Tribute, which became a movie. She said that the story was based on her son talking to his teacher, who talked to the teacher. The teacher had said his father told him this, and that Edward Everett, who was on the train to Gettysburg, told the father Edward Everett wasn't on the train to Gettysburg. She published this book by Charles Scribner's sons, it became required reading in American English classes in high school. She sold five million copies, and the story is absolutely untrue. It gets to the point of what, how did Lincoln become such a good speaker? If this was a college audience, high school audience, I would want to say this over and over again. There is no such thing as good writing. There is only good rewriting. May I make my point? Turn the page. Who wrote Lincoln's speeches? Well, that's a question we asked today when I gave my first, wrote my first Lincoln book. I was invited to the White House to meet with two of President Bush's speechwriters. And I was learned, learned there were seven speechwriters for President Bush, but they quickly told me that President Clinton had nine speechwriters. A year later, I was invited to give a lecture at the White House, and when it was over, several young women came up to introduce themselves, and they said they were part of the nine researchers for the seven speechwriters. 
I'm here to tell you that Lincoln wrote his own speeches with two exceptions. And the first was when he came through Baltimore the first time. This was his inauguration. He must have thought to himself, you know, I think I'm pretty good at this. I did well in the debates with Douglas. But this time, I think I better show my drafts of my first inaugural address, his inaugural address. He didn't think it was his first one. So he showed it to three friends in Illinois. Two said, great. One made a significant suggestion, if brief. He got to Washington, and he met William Seward, who had been his chief rival for the Republican nomination, now his new Secretary of State. And at lunch on his first Sunday there at Seward's home on Lafayette Square, he said, Mr. Seward, I know you're a wonderful speaker. Here's a draft of my inaugural address. Would you be willing to look at it? And if you have some suggestions, I'd be happy to hear them. That very evening, at parlor number six at the Willard Hotel, there was a knock on the door. Lincoln opened it, and here was Frederick Seward, William's son. He said, sir, my father has an envelope for you. Lincoln accepted the envelope, closed the door, opened it, and here were seven pages of suggestions on how to improve his inaugural address. Seward had taken the address and, and with a red pen numbered every line, he made 49 suggestions, of which Lincoln accepted 27. But then Lincoln gets to page 6, and Seward writes, as for your last paragraph, forget it. It will never do. Lincoln had concluded his address with, will it be peace or a sword? And Seward said, with insight, that's not the way to conclude. You want to conclude more with conciliation. He said, so I've written two new last paragraphs. You may choose which one you'd like to use. So Lincoln chose one of the two paragraphs, and what I've done for you is to take Seward's paragraph and Lincoln's paragraph and put them in different columns to make my point, there's no such thing as good writing, there's only good rewriting. Let's see how Lincoln rewrites Seward. Well, Seward's first sentence is, I close. Now, any of us who've tried to edit or revise our own or somebody else's letters or papers know that the first thing we want to do is to cut all those extra adjectives and adverbs. Well, it's very difficult to cut a two-word sentence. Lincoln actually extends the sentence, I am loath to close. Now, for us to really appreciate this, I'm going to ask you to say this sentence out loud. Because Lincoln always read out loud to the consternation of his law partner, Willie Herndon. I suggest in people who are reading Lincoln, reading my books on Lincoln, read his words out loud. I discovered in working on Lincoln, I dipped into the story of American education and discovered that until the 1830s, children always read out loud in their classroom until one afternoon, I can imagine it right now, a teacher, frustrated and tired, said something like, Johnny, be quiet. You're disturbing Mary. Read to yourself. And ever since we have taken up this bad habit of reading to ourselves. I remember once we were vacationing in England and we were staying in a hotel and there's this big parlor and everybody was sitting around reading out loud. And I thought, this is the oddest thing I've ever. They would get together in small groups. Mary Lincoln always read out loud. She read out loud to the children. She read out loud to Abraham. If you read out loud, and I say this to students, you will hear something you will never hear by reading it. Lincoln said, read with two senses, the eye and the ear. 
Let's say this sentence out loud. Slowly, Lincoln spoke 110 words a minute. You and I speak about 150. Let's say it. I am loath to close. Little, one more time, very slowly, I am loath to close. All right, here's the extra credit question. What is Lincoln doing? Why does he revise it? Why does he extend it? Well, if you say, I close, that's too quick. The whole point of it is, you don't want to close. So he extends the meaning, I am loath to close. And then he does something which we would call technically assonance. Assonance. He groups together words of similar meaning, I am loath to close. The point about Lincoln not being good spontaneously, but being very good as a reviser. The crowd surged to the White House after the victories at Gettysburg and Vicksburg in July of 1863. Speech, speech. He didn't want to speak. He refused to speak when they came the day after Appomattox. Come back tomorrow when I can get prepared. But he spoke, and he started out, oh, he was so embarrassed by this afterwards. What was it 80-some-odd years ago that our... But give him four months, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers. That's Abraham Lincoln. The second sentence is the one that Barack Obama chose to use in his wonderful speech at Grant Park in November of 2008 when he won the presidency. He wouldn't have chosen Seward's words. Seward said, we are not, we must not be aliens or enemies, but fellow countrymen and brethren. Lincoln, who's learning that less is more, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. We'll skip the third sentence. Now imagine to yourself, it's page seven of, Link, of Seward's long letter. Lincoln's standing, reading it out loud in parlor six of the Willard Hotel. And he reads the mystic chords which proceeding from so many battlefields and so many patriot graves pass through all the hearts and all the hearths in this broad continent of ours will yet again harmonize in their ancient music when breathed upon by the guardian angel of the nation. And I think Lincoln said to himself, my goodness sakes, what can I do with this? But watch what he does with it. This final sentence of his inaugural address are some of the great words of American history and culture. Why are they great? Let's read them together out loud and we'll sense the musical sound of them. The mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Seward had said, when breathed upon by the guardian angel of the nation, Lincoln personalizes it, pulls us all into the story, the better angels of our nature. This is an injunction as to how we can act together. Well, Another window that I open in my biography is what was Lincoln's attitude about slavery? Uh, how did he understand this? And I try to draw the distinction between what was his public point of view and his personal point of view 
they would finally merge. So that three men came to see him in March of 1864, the governor of the state of Kentucky, the editor of the leading newspaper, a former United States senator. The governor had written Lincoln five times. He was getting very angry because the Union troops were recruiting African Americans from the agricultural fields of Kentucky. Most all of the African Americans who served in the army came from the South. And he said, you're destroying our economy. I want to see you in person. So they arrived. Not three men from Massachusetts. Three men from Kentucky. And Lincoln begins, I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel. But I never thought it was my personal prerogative to act on my own beliefs over against the Constitution. That had been his tension. So when we read uh, uh, his, uh, uh, Horace Greeley had written the prayer of 20 millions saying, why don't you free the slaves now? And Lincoln writes back, and this is quoted today by those who want to derogate Lincoln well, I would free some of the slaves if I could save the Union. I would free all of the slaves if I could save the Union. But what they forget is that Lincoln held the Emancipation Proclamation in his pocket as he wrote those words. And what they forget is what Lincoln said at the end. As for my own personal belief, I wish that all men could be free. Well, the Emancipation Proclamation offers freedom, not everywhere, but it is a military move as well as a political move. But in, deep within it was the possibility of the role of black soldiers. Now most people felt at that time that, well, perhaps blacks could serve in the army, but maybe at the back of the army is stevedores. And there was a question, hard for us to look back and even imagine this, even by those who were advocates, well, perhaps because they had been cowed in slavery, they'd been forced to be sort of somewhat docile, would they be able to have the ability to fight? And Lincoln didn't see this at first. Secretary of War Stanton, General Ulysses S. Grant, saw it before he did. But then he began to see the tremendous courage of African Americans as they stepped forward. 179,000 would serve in the Union forces. And so he received an invitation to come and speak at Springfield. Well, as I said earlier on, he had refused all invitations, but an abolitionist in Boston wrote him and said, you know, your, your, your address at Springfield uh, is so good, you ought to be speaking at Gettysburg, and that's why he expected Gettysburg. But he couldn't speak at Springfield at the end of the summer of 1863, and so he sent a, a letter, which is really a speech to be read, 50 to 70,000 people gathered in the largest rally, Union rally of the war. How did Lincoln speak to 50 to 70,000 people in a letter that was read? There were seven speaking stands. His letter was read seven times. And at the heart of this letter is the next selection that I want to have us read, the last one for the evening. We'll then turn to your comments and questions. Peace does not appear so distant as it did. I hope it will come soon and come to stay and so come as to be worth the keeping in all future time. It will then have been proved that among free men there can be no successful appeal from the ballot 
to the bullet. Lincoln loved alliteration. And that they who take such appeal are sure to lose their case and pay the cost. But then these lines leap out of his words and he knew that what he was about to say would be deeply unpopular in central and southern Illinois. And then there will be some black men who can remember that with silent tongue and clenched teeth and steady eye and well-poised bayonet, they have helped mankind on to this great consummation. Now, he could have stopped there. Perhaps he should have stopped there, but he was not about to stop. While I fear there will be some white ones unable to forget that with malignant heart and deceitful speech, they have strove to hinder it. How we wish that Abraham Lincoln could have delivered that speech that day, because we don't know what the tone, the emotion might have been. But we do. I discovered that Lincoln's third secretary, beyond Hay and Nicolay, had wandered into the White House on a Sunday afternoon when Lincoln was writing this out. And this man records the story of Lincoln saying out loud some of the speech, and he says it's as if Lincoln was speaking to 100,000 people, and he knew that 50,000 of them did not agree with him, but by his persuasion, that's what public speaking is all about, persuading those who don't agree with you, he could persuade them. And then he leaves us, he said, but there was one place where Lincoln stood up, and his hands were outstretched. It's exactly the portion that I read to you right now. This is what Lincoln felt most deeply. He was going to praise the courage of these black soldiers. Let me conclude with this. Why should we be talking about Abraham Lincoln in 2010? We study all of these people in college, high school, <clears throat> but almost none of them are we still repeating their words today. When the people of New York sought a way to remember 9-11 on the first anniversary, they looked around for a poet or a politician who could give voice to their words. In the end, they simply repeated the Gettysburg Address. I suggest it is in the fact that Lincoln, the man of precedent, the man who loved the Founding Fathers, the man who as a lawyer looked back to previous legal cases, also changed in the middle of the Civil War. And this is what he said in what we would now today call a State of the Union Address at the end of December 1862. The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate for the stormy present. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. And I suggest that Lincoln says to us that every generation needs to redefine America for its own day. With great deference to those who've come before, with the values that they've lifted up, but with a recognition that injustice still exists and that he calls upon us to define what that may be. And I'm convinced that 25 years from now or 50 years from now when someone stands in this room or another room in this great library and talks about Abraham Lincoln, that audience will discover what I want us to discover, that even as we attempt to define America for our day, Lincoln can still be a guide. He can still teach us how to respect each other, even if we disagree, to be inclusive in our appreciation of the diversity of our culture, to speak with humility. 
Abraham Lincoln still speaks in 2010. Thank you very much. And now we have time for your comments and questions. I'll repeat them so that everybody can hear. Oh, you have a microphone. Oh, oh, good. Sure. I didn't see that there. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everybody. My name's Larry Hawthorne. I came in a little late. Had another meeting downstairs to attend. But, uh, sir, one of the things I'd like to comment on is the uh, what you mentioned about the question in the minds of a lot of people of Lincoln's day about the courage or the um, willingness of black soldiers to fight. I like to say that I'm a Vietnam era vet. I was not in combat, but I, I was in service at the time. And I remember in 1965 there was that question. And it's been that question every conflict that this country's ever been involved in, yeah. from Bunker Hill down to what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, well, this is just a, it's an attitudinal thing. Sure. Because I don't think at this point there's any question about whether or not black soldiers had the courage or the moral fiber to uh, engage in combat. Let's go back for a second to, uh, the 19, to 1942. I'm talking about the Tuskegee experiment. The uh, black pilots who were trained for fight, as fighter pilots, they were, uh, there was a question about that then. I don't believe, well, by the end of the war, that had been pretty much settled, at least as far as the Germans were concerned. But I think it's an attitudinal thing. And, it's, and oh, we know old attitudes die hard, but hey, look, when is this nonsense going to end? When is, this not, when is this country, and I'm going to put this out there for, for everybody, when are we going to, we collectively going to stop acting like there's no problem? In other words, like the teasing virgin who never really gets down to where it's at. Huh? Think about it. You said it very eloquently, better than I can. Thank you. <laughs> the question or the comment is I brought up the Gettysburg Address. I said he didn't write it on the back of a flap of an envelope. So her question is when did he write it and when did he rewrite it? We don't know the full story, and I, in my book, The Eloquent President, I, I try to appeal to the fact that he never, ever wrote anything, never spoke spontaneously. When he did, he didn't do well. The night before the Gettysburg Address, the crowd surrounded him, came to the house where he is, was staying. The house has now been uh, rededicated. It's the lawyer's home. And he spoke. And when it was over, his young secretary, John Hay, wrote in his diary, that was the most forgettable speech that the chief has ever offered. So there's a couple of divergent stories that Lincoln started writing it one, two, two and a half weeks before in Washington. We're not exactly sure when he was initially invited. The Gettysburg Address was supposed to be at the end of October, and Edward Everett said, sorry, I won't be ready. <laughs> so being wary of the weather, they shifted the date from October to November 19 because of Edward Everett said, I can't be ready till November 19. There is the, the belief that, that Lincoln revised that speech certainly that morning, but possibly the night before he may have added to it. It's an interesting speech because he, he inserts the words under God in it. He doesn't usually change his text. And often when he made an insertion, he would then he would go back and correct the drafts. He would take it back out. He never did. 
he made other copies of the Gettysburg Address and he let that, those pivotal words under God stay in the address. They gave a, a different meaning to the totality of it. There are, there are copies of the address in his hand, yes. Sadly, there are not all the copies of his addresses when he was in Illinois. Uh, 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 Lincoln's, the, the, the made in Lincoln's house confusing what was the trash throughout the copies of his great uh, address, uh, the House Divided Speech. It's just, those are the tragic things of history. The drafts were there and they got thrown out. But we do have drafts and, and I try to show in my book, The Eloquent President, I show various versions of his different speeches so you can see how how he changes and why. Two great questions at the beginning of my talk. Was he a racist and his views on habeas corpus? Okay. What an historian would want to say, but is difficult to say to today's audiences, is we need to understand people in their historical context. Their views about race, their views about women, their views about this, their views about that. So uh, you can cut and paste uh, and find attitudes of Lincoln. For example, uh, in his fourth debate with Stephen Douglas, he again allowed himself to do something spontaneously, which I think he rued afterwards. He was sitting on the porch of the hotel where he was staying, and a man engaged him in a conversation. So he began the debate by saying, a man just asked me a question. Let me see if I can answer it for all of us. And then he started saying, it's not that I'm about to marry a black woman. It's not that I think that blacks should serve on juries. It's not that I think, and Lerone Bennett in his book, Forced into Glory, Abraham Lincoln's White Dream, quotes those words. But unfortunately, that's only the beginning of what Lincoln is saying. Lincoln is a debater. He's a lawyer. He is conceding secondary points to get to the major point. I have to admit that my client was there that evening. I have to admit that my client was drinking that evening. I have to admit that my client had a club in his hand that evening, but, at Charleston Lincoln said, but this black woman in her right to earn the bread that she has from her own hand is every bit my equal and the equal of every person here. So that's part of this story. If I had a whiteboard, a blackboard, I would draw on the, the state of Illinois and I'd draw it on the United States and I said, where does Lincoln stand? Is he way to the left as an abolitionist? No. Is he way to the right? No. I would place him left of center, but willing to change and to grow. Habeas corpus quickly, uh, the suspension of the, a person's right to a fair trial. John Merriman of Maryland was arrested. Now, if we were in a law school this evening, most people would say Lincoln was wrong. There's a question, where does habeas corpus lodge in the Constitution? Is it under the powers of Congress or the powers of the president? Most would say it's the power of Congress. And the lawyers, theoretically, would say Lincoln is wrong. But we don't live in a theoretical world. We live in a real world. And Lincoln said, do you want me to obey every single law of this land and let the whole union fall to pieces? The problem with habeas corpus, I think, is when President Bush or any other president appeals back to Lincoln and says, see, Lincoln did it in the Civil War, and we can do it in the war with Iraq. I'm very, very suspicious of making historical analogies that because something happened then, we can do it now. 
That's how habeas corpus, I think, has received a very bad name. Yes, sir. Um, hi. I want to thank you for your remarks. Uh, I just, you were just talking about uh, John Merriman. There's a Merriman Trail out at Lock Raven. Uh, it's a hiking trail. Oh. And his family is still uh, in the Maryland area. In fact, one of his descendants uh, just died uh, last year. It was covered in the Baltimore Sun. Lived uh, out in the Cockeysville area. My, um, I, I, I haven't read your book, but I was able to leaf through it um, uh, last night, as a matter of fact. And uh, I was very impressed by your writing about Thomas Lincoln, Lincoln's father, when he uh, moved to Indiana, I think that was in 1816, and he, he floated his uh, supplies down the river, and then he cut a trail, you wrote, through 16 miles of dense woods by itself, <laughs> and then built a slight homestead, went back, got his family, and cut another trail through another 16 miles. I, that, was, that was a very uh, invocative writing. Anyways, I want to compliment you on, on that. My question um, has, has to do with uh, the president that preceded Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln is often in a lot of uh, polls considered one of our best presidents. And the man that preceded him, James Buchanan, is considered one of the worst presidents. Um, and, you know, James Buchanan, other than maybe James Madison, is probably the most prepared for the presidency. That's right. My, my question is, what was the relationship between the two men? I know that when Lincoln came into Congress in 47, Buchanan was already in James Polk's cabinet as the Secretary of State, but did they have a relationship? What was the, you know, how did they interface with, with each other? Thank you. Wonderful question. James Buchanan, as you suggest, came to the presidency as one of the most experienced persons ever. So when Lincoln runs, with little experience, he's compared to Buchanan. Buchanan also had the happy circumstance of being out of the United States for the four years previous while the Kansas-Nebraska Act was roiling up sentiment. He had been, I believe, the, the ambassador to either England or Russia. Russia. So he comes in and he's not a part of this. We don't have any paper trail on him. And he's an impressive looking man, and, but he is, and Lincoln talks about this, he is one of this group of Democrats in the 1840s and 50s who win the presidential election by appealing not to the North but to the South, to sort of saying the problem is the North, the problem is abolitionism, the North has got to stop this, we have to respect those in the South. So in this odd way, this man whose home today is still open, I visited it out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is really beholden to the South. And therefore, in the last days of his presidency, uh, he, he, he's, he's paralyzed. He, 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 in the one hand, he says, well, the South shouldn't be succeeding, seceding, but I can't do anything about it. The good news is that Lincoln had a mole, as it were, inside Buchanan's cabinet at the end. Edwin Stanton, who would become the uh, Secretary of, of War, is in the cabinet and understanding what is not taking place. So Lincoln is privately fuming and furious in Springfield at the spinelessness of James Buchanan. And when they finally, you wonder about the real conversations, but when they finally meet on that inauguration day, 
Buchanan, who just sort of looks totally bedraggled, sort of says, wow, I can't wait to get out of this place. I can't wait to go home to Lancaster. I don't know why in the world, in a sense, you can wait to get into this office. So that's the relationship. So Lincoln arrives with this backdrop. And, and, and Buchanan, what isn't being said here is Buchanan wasn't nominated by his own party for re-election because they recognized that he was not a good leader. Yeah. I've never been asked that question before. That's a good one. Yes. Regarding uh, Lincoln's writings, what is your take on the Bixby letter? I know there are uh, some recent scholars that have mm -hmm. claimed it was John Hay mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not Lincoln. Yes. The Bixby letter is, the, is this wonderful letter to a woman who Lincoln believes has lost five sons. My wife won't let me see yet with her the saving of Private Ryan. <laughs> she says it's too violent, so we haven't seen the movie yet. But evidently, that's at the beginning of that movie. And, and the, the recent scholars, knowing that Lincoln sometimes did have John Hay, his young secretary, write for him. He was a very literate young man and signed his letters. I'm not persuaded. I, I, to me, this letter still rings authentic of Lincoln. It's been sh showed that, or told, that Lincoln uses some words in there that he may not have used in other letters. It's possible. And the fact that he did, the fact that Mrs. Bixby did not lose five sons is totally irrelevant. He thought she lost five sons, and he writes this remarkable letter of compassion to her. Yes. All right. Good question. Do I know what in Johnson's character made Lincoln want him to be vice president? First, it seems very probable Lincoln did not choose Johnson to be his vice president. Vice presidents were really inconsequential in Lincoln's day. Lincoln's vice president, got, Hannibal Hamlin, got so tired of doing nothing that he returned to Maine and joined the Coast Guard while he was vice president. <laughs> and of course, there had never been an assassination, so that wasn't in anybody's mind. So the, the point in 1864, they actually campaigned as the National Union Party, not even as the Republican Party. And, and, and Johnson was one of the most visible members of the South, he was from Tennessee, who had stayed with the Union as opposed to going to the Confederacy. So what better thing symbolically than to have from your vice president, not a, May, a man from Maine, but a man from Tennessee, that would balance the party. So Lincoln and Johnson literally had no relationship, except this story, and I will close. I see our host is standing by the microphone, and it is at 7.30. Johnson arrives for Lincoln's second inauguration. In those days, the vice president gave a speech, too. He had been sick. He arrived at the, White House, at, at the Capitol, went to his office, took a little tumbler of whiskey. As he walked over to the Capitol, <clears throat> He took a second tumbler of whiskey. As he stood outside where he was about to, stood outside the room where he would give his speech, he took a third tumbler of whiskey. By the time he stood up to speak, he was drunk. And it was very obvious to everyone that he was drunk. And Republicans were literally putting their hands over their head. And Abraham Lincoln supposedly said, don't let Andy Johnson speak outside. It was so embarrassing. That was not a good augur for what was going to take place. 
I'm very happy to stay here. Do we need to conclude? No, we should. We can, if there are other questions. Sure, surely. Yes. Just going to the Over here first. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes. Okay, this is this he's going to be reading a section from get in the microphone. George McGovern was asked to write a biography of Lincoln in this series of biographies of presidents, sort of shorter biographies. And we'd probably fail to know that George McGovern has a PhD in history from Northwestern University. Yes. This is him. This is George McGovern's uh, comment about mm-hmm. uh, Abraham Lincoln's, uh, you know, what he thought yes. of his position about slavery. He's saying uh, his position uh, on slavery notwithstanding, uh, Lincoln uh, nevertheless shared the commonplace uh, racial prejudices of white society in the 19th century. He did not believe that blacks were necessarily the equal of whites on social levels. He did not approve of interracial marriage and did not advocate black suffrage. Like many people, he was not at all sure that blacks and whites could ever uh, live together in in harmony in America. And I was just thinking about, you know, what you said about uh, whether or not he was racist. Uh, my reading of that is that uh, um, also from what, what I saw earlier in the book is that it wasn't necessarily so much that he really believed that um, blacks and whites were equal or didn't have any racial uh, prejudices. It was more like he was like he hated slavery. And he also said that it wasn't in the Constitution that all men were created equal. My own reading is that he was saying that you know, I'm really, the Constitution says that all men are created equal. I think my own opinion is that he was more galvanized by that than, say, any love or anything for uh, African Americans or Negroes. I, I think I agree with almost everything you and George McGovern have said. Lincoln did not, with any, along with everyone else, accept the social equality of blacks. This was just not possible. Uh, The one difference that I would make with McGovern's statement is that when Lincoln gives his last speech, and John Wilkes Booth is there, Lincoln begins to suggest in that last speech after Appomattox the strong possibility that blacks who fought in the Union should have the suffrage, and the possibility that blacks of a certain intellectual ability could have the suffrage. This is something we ought to be thinking about. And when Wilkes, John Wilkes Booth hears those words, he is enraged. He turns to the man next to him and says, those are the last words this nigger lover is ever going to say. So John Wilkes Booth understood very clearly the direction that, Booth, that, uh, that Lincoln was moving. But this is, you're absolutely correct in terms of the social inequality. Uh, there was no possibility of this. This was, this was, if you want to use the word, the racial prejudice. And the irony and the paradox of this is that when Frederick Douglass, the greatest African-American of his day, towards the end of his life, marries a white woman, he is then the target of prejudice, 
by African Americans who are just outraged that he would marry a black, a white woman. So yes, this is part of what Lincoln is. But then the second point that you made, I fully agree with too. Lincoln comes back into the political fight having rediscovered the Declaration of Independence. We think it was always there. It had literally dropped from view. The Declaration of Independence was viewed by members of his own party as only that document that separated us from the mother country, Great Britain. So Lincoln says, all men are created equal. And people say, well, did Thomas Jefferson really believe that? Lincoln said he did believe that. I'm not sure he did believe that. And members of his own party said, but, but Jefferson was only appealing to white British male citizens. And then one final word here. Someone says, well, if the founders wanted this, why didn't they make everybody equal? And Lincoln says, ah, it's like the Savior's words. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus did not say you are perfect, but it's the road upon which we are to travel. And Lincoln says, if the founders did not make people equal, we have an opportunity in our day to further what they said. In other words, he makes all men are created equal a reforming impulse. And obviously, women were not equal in that time. But it's a reforming impulse that we have to fully realize. Yes? Okay. Yes, right. You know, to give him some color, you know, to mm-hmm. put powder on. So they, uh, rumors started they were going to try to kidnap his body, hold him for ransom mm-hmm. after he was buried. And his family had him dug up, and they relocated him, and they poured cement around the uh, interment, and they built the monument in D.C., no, there was attempts to, to rob Lincoln's body in Illinois, and more than one. And finally, what, 15, 20 years later, they actually did dug, dig the body up again, took a fresh look at it. He was remarkably composed, and then they put him in the monument with the cement around it. That, that's, that's actually true. Yeah. The interesting thing that I've learned is that I have a dear friend, a professor at USC, who's writing what I think would be a wonderful new book, on sort of link the, the, assass- the, the assassination, but then the funeral train, and how did people respond to Lincoln? And what he's showing is that people responded not just with appreciation, but with deep affection. But the curious thing is that many Republican senators in their private letters and diaries were almost, this is hard to believe, almost glad that Lincoln was removed from the scene because they viewed him as too soft too conciliatory towards the South, and they welcomed Andrew Johnson as the president in those early days because they believed Johnson would be tough, whereas Lincoln would have been a softy towards the South. This is the way they viewed him. He would have been too conciliatory. I'm going to stay here, be happy to sign some books, to continue the conversation. I'm not going anywhere until tomorrow morning, and so I want to thank you again for welcoming me. Thank you. Thank you.